Please turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 5. The king receives his crown. 2 Samuel chapter 5. We're continuing on in our study of the books of Samuel. And today we come to a great turning point in Israel's history. At long last, David begins to reign over not just the tribe of Judah, but over all of Israel. It's a great turning point, and there is much to consider. So, let's get right to it. You can follow along with me as we read. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was thirty years old when he began to reign, and he reigned forty years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah thirty-three years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the Milo inward. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons, who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem, Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Elida, and Elephelet. And the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all Israel. All the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of the Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, And David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore the name of that place is Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up, go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him. 
and he struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask the Lord to bless our time as we consider the reading and the preaching of His Word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your goodness and grace given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask God now that You would, because of Christ's work on behalf of His people, that You would give us even more grace, that we might hear Your Word as we ought. Please give us ears of faith, Father. We do know that the Bible is the very Word of God. And so we do pray that You would speak to us now from the Scriptures, that we would hear the things that You have declared to be true, and that our hearts would be conformed to the image of Christ, that our minds would be renewed after the Word of God. We pray, Father, that all of this would then manifest itself in lives lives of obedience and holiness and love for God and love for neighbor so that Your glory might indeed be seen across all this earth. Father, keep me from error. Please help me to speak the things that are true and faithful to the Scriptures and grant Your people discernment, God, that we might hold fast to the truth until that great and final day. We pray, Father, in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen. Well, it's a long way from 1 Samuel 16 to 2 Samuel 5. 1 Samuel 16, you'll recall, told the story of God's decision to anoint David as king over all of Israel. Saul had failed as king, so God sought a man after his own heart, and that man was David, the youngest and the overlooked son of Jesse. 1 Samuel 16 told that story, but by the time we get to 2 Samuel 5, David's anointing is... 15, perhaps as much as 20 years in the past. Think about that, friends. For nearly two decades, David has been waiting. Two decades ago, I could just drive a car. I mean, two decades he's been waiting. And you have to wonder, as the years and the months and the days and the weeks and all those things ticked by, how often did David think to himself, when, when will the day ever come? When, when will the waiting actually end? It's nearly two decades. When will it be over? Well, the answer, friends, is today in 2 Samuel 5. As we said a moment ago, this chapter is a turning point. At long last, David receives the throne of all Israel. He's reigned over Judah already for seven and a half years, but now the entire nation of Israel is brought together and united behind David. In fact, chapters 5 through 8 kick off an entirely new section in the book of 2 Samuel. Chapters 5 through 8, they're one sustained unit in the history of David's life. And the theme of this unit is the success of David's early reign. If you want to get a picture of just how great a king David could be, These chapters are that picture. This is kingdom success at its peak. This is what it looks like to thrive under the rule of God's King. Now that picture won't last forever, as you already know. Beginning in chapter 9, and certainly by chapter 11, things take a sharply downward turn for David. But here in these chapters, 5-8, through It's by and large a positive, successful, thriving, prosperous scene. 
The struggle of years past has faded and the trouble of years ahead is still a long ways off. For now, it's just kingdom growth. Kingdom growth. And chapter 5 is the turning point. Along with being a turning point, chapter 5 is also a bit of patchwork history. Dale Davis in his excellent commentary on 2 Samuel calls this chapter a kingdom collage. A kingdom collage. And I think that's a helpful way of of seeing it. This is patchwork history. The events in this chapter are not necessarily sequential, and neither are they strictly chronological. The author is taking bits and pieces of David's entire lifetime, and he is stitching them together so that we might appreciate the incredible scope of the kingdom's growth. You see, it's it's a patchwork. It's a quilt. It's a collage. Different pictures stitched together. And the thread holding all of those pictures together is the faithfulness of God to fulfill His purposes, both for David and for His people. This will be the key for us, friends, over the next several chapters. We need to appreciate David's growing kingdom. We need to appreciate just how great a king David can be. But more than that, we need to behold David's God. We need to appreciate just how great David's God is. For it's that thread of God's faithfulness that holds together both David's story and ours. As we turn now to the details of the text, we find that this patchwork history consists of three distinct pictures. Three distinct pictures stitched together by God's faithfulness and each one giving us a different perspective on King David's growing reign and power. Three distinct pictures, and it's these pictures that will get our attention this morning. With the first one coming in verses 1 to 5, the king stands on God's promises. The king stands on God's promises. As we've already noted, the opening verses of the chapter bring to an end David's long years of of waiting. You see that right away in verse 1. Look again at at the text. The elders of the northern tribes recognize that they have no leader and therefore no way of opposing David's claim to the throne. So in an act of submission, they travel down to Hebron to express their allegiance to Israel's new king. Now, we might see the elders of Israel as motivated by political necessity. They have no leader after all. So it's better to submit to someone willingly than to be made to submit by force. So we might see this as a rather shrewd political move on their part, but the text actually gives us a different set of reasons for their submission to David. Notice again how this kingdom union is described. First of all, the elders stress their kinship with David. Look at verse 1, where they say, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. Remember, David is of the tribe of Judah, while the elders represent the northern tribes, in particular the tribe of Benjamin. But here in verse 1, their shared heritage wins out over their tribal division. The northern tribes put aside any animosity and they focus instead on their kinship as the sons of Israel. The elders also emphasize the quality of David's leadership. Notice verse 2. In times past when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. Now that phrase, led out and brought in, has a rich Old Testament background. It goes all the way back to Moses, actually, in the book of Numbers. 
And it's connected with Joshua. So Moses and Joshua, two of Israel's greatest leaders. But notice how the elders of Israel apply that history to the present. They use the phrase to raise David up over Saul. Even when Saul was king, it was David who led the people. That's the takeaway here. It's David, not Saul, who stands in the stream of Israel's rich history. It's David who's like Moses. It's David who's like Joshua. The elders emphasize the quality of David's leadership, and it's a rich quality. He's like these leaders of old. But most significant of all, the elders of Israel highlight God's promise to David. Notice again the middle of verse 2. The elders testify, And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of My people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. You see, it's divine promise that drives this kingdom union. It's divine promise at work. The elders submit to David because God is fulfilling His Word. The elders submit to David because God is keeping His promises and working out His purposes. You see, the people of Israel recognize David not merely as their political king, but as their promised king. The one whom God has raised up for such a time as this. And so the promise comes to pass in verse 3. It's actually a moving moment. It's a a moving picture. Look at verse 3. The people express their submission to the king. And notice how the king responds. King David made a covenant with them at Hebron. The people submit to the king, and the king binds himself to his people in covenant. Now, don't miss that, friends. It's a striking picture of what will one day be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we have David, the shepherd king, binding himself to his people in covenant. I mean, you can almost hear the words of John 10 ringing in the background, can't you? God has given his people a good shepherd. He's given them a good shepherd who loves them with a covenant love, who will protect them with a covenant strength. God has given them a good shepherd. And He's done so in faithfulness to His promise. You see, the medium of God's grace to His people has always been a king who would shepherd the people where they could not lead themselves. That's what we see here. God has raised up a good shepherd to guide His people. Now at this point, In the chapter, the the author of 2 Samuel intends us to pause and to reflect for a moment on the significance of this, of this scene for the people of God. The Lord gave David the promise of kingship nearly 20 years ago in this story. And since then, the promise has faced nothing but opposition. Really nothing but opposition. Everything, it seemed, was working against God's promise to David. But now, despite that opposition, God's promise has prevailed. You see, that's the encouragement tucked away very quietly in verse 2. The author is reminding us that God's promises are not flimsy offers that might or might not come to pass. No, God's promises are resilient guarantees that prevail against all opposition. The promises of God are as solid as steel. The promises of God are as sure as the sun rising. The whole world can rise up against the promises of God and still the Lord's work carries on. He will bring His promise to pass. It may take years. 
And the waiting may stretch the faith of His people. Even David had seasons where his faith seemed far-fetched. But in the end, the promise holds true. And the faith of God's people can rest on the Lord's resilient, unbreakable, solid-as-steel promises. The promise prevails. But perhaps as I say this, some of you are thinking to yourself, that all sounds great for David, but this does nothing for me. Perhaps you're thinking to yourself, I could live by faith if God told me a promise, but He hasn't given me a promise like He gave David. This does nothing for me. I don't have David's promise. And that's true, friends. That's right. You don't have David's promise. But if you belong to Christ, then you do have David's God. And that makes all the difference. You see, that's the key here. Not do you have David's promise, but do you have David's God? In fact, the God who kept this promise to David is the same God who says to you in Hebrews 13, I will never leave you or forsake you. The God who raised David to the throne of Israel is the same God who declares to you in Philippians 1 that He will finish the good work that He has begun in you. The God who overcame all of Israel's opposition is the same God who says in Ephesians 3 that He is able to do far more than we could ever ask or imagine. The question is not do you have David's promise, but do you have David's God? You see, He's the same God. And therefore, when He keeps His promise to David, He's also saying to you and to me, I'll keep my promises to you as well. I'll fulfill my word for you as well. So take heart, brothers and sisters, and see in David's life a reminder of the solid foundation God has given you for your faith. Your faith does not rest on nothing. It rests on the solidest steel promises of God given to you in the Word and solidified and guaranteed by God's unchangeable character. So when David takes the throne, you can say, God will keep me to the end. The king stands on God's promises and by grace we can stand there as well. This discussion of God's promises actually carries on into verse 6 and following where we find the second picture in our patchwork chapter. The king anticipates God's dominion. The king anticipates God's dominion. Having unified the kingdoms, David now moves to establish a national capital. He chooses the strategic site of Jerusalem, which from this point forward will feature prominently in redemptive history. Now the choice of Jerusalem is significant for a number of reasons that deserve our attention. First of all, David's conquest of Jerusalem illustrates his skill as a commander. Jerusalem, as you might know, is an elevated city that has strong natural defenses. In fact, the inhabitants of the city, the ancient inhabitants of the city, the Jebusites, had held on to this place since the time of Joshua. No Israelite had been able to drive the Jebusites out of Jerusalem. That's why they taunt David in verse 6. You see it there? They, they taunt him. Their defenses are so strong, even the disabled will be able to drive David off. 
But in verse 8, those taunts are matched by the skill of Israel's new king. David uses the city's water shafts to conquer the city. Jerusalem is elevated. Its water source is down below in a spring. There's some shafts that lead down to the water. That's how they get it up. It's not immediately clear how the strategy worked. Maybe David's men scaled up the water shafts and went into the city. Or maybe they just went down and cut off the water supply until the people surrendered. It's not entirely clear how they did it, but the significant point is that they did it. Finally, Jerusalem is conquered. Verse 10 is a fitting summary. Notice what it says. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. You see, David is the divinely enabled king who conquers with God-given power. The conquest reveals his God-given skill then as a commander. Along with that, the conquest also reveals David's growing reputation. Notice verses 11 and 12 where Hiram, the king of Tyre, offers to build David a palace. Understand, friends, this is a luxurious gift. The the cedars of Lebanon, they're basically almost extinct today, but in the ancient world, the cedars of Lebanon were renowned and prized and coveted. And here, David gets them as a gift. He doesn't have to go take them for himself. He receives them as a gift. And it's a gift that's fitting only for a mighty king. That's what we're intended to see. David's reputation is growing. All of the nations now are flowing in to honor God's king. Verse 12 then is again a fitting summary. Look at verse 12. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that He had exalted His kingdom for the sake of His people. You see, David is widely recognized as the king who rules for the good of his people. This is important, friends, and something that we'll see over the next few chapters. David is not a king for his own sake, but for the sake of his people. God has not raised David up in order that David might be served, but instead that David might serve and to use his life for the good of others. And that service begins here with the conquest of Jerusalem. David's reputation is growing. He's growing. He's a good king. But ultimately, friends, the conquest of Jerusalem is about more than military skill. It's about more than an international reputation. The conquest of Jerusalem is the next step in God's plan to spread His own glorious reign over all the earth. The conquest of Jerusalem is God's plan to spread His own glorious reign over the face of all the earth. To see this, however, we have to go back a ways in Israel's history. All the way back to the life of Father Abraham, actually. The specific moment comes in Genesis chapter 15 where the Lord cut a covenant with Abraham. I'm going to read the the passage. I'm going to read what the Lord said to Abraham I want you to listen for the connection with 2 Samuel 5. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, and the land of the Kenites, and the Kenizzites, and the Kadmonites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So who were the last people listed in God's covenant promise? The Jebusites. But, 
The Jebusites were not driven out in Abraham's lifetime. They weren't driven out during Moses' lifetime. They weren't conquered by Joshua or Caleb or Gideon or any of the other judges. They weren't driven out by Saul. For all of Israel's history to this point, the Jebusites have stubbornly held on to their hilltop city. And God's promise, it seemed, remained stymied outside of Jerusalem's walls. But here in verse 8 of 2 Samuel 5, all of that changes. At long last, the Jebusites of Genesis 15 are conquered by the king of 2 Samuel 5. You see, it's more than military skill. This is the progress of redemptive history. This is the steady onward march of God's plan to spread His glory over the entire face of the earth. Has it been slow in coming? Has God's plan been slow in coming? Well, perhaps. But that's only if we demand that God work according to our timetable. But I'll contend, friends, that God's plan has not been slow at all. It's been purposeful. You see, by waiting until the time of David to do this, by waiting for David, God has revealed something significant about redemptive history. Something essential, in fact. God is showing us how His promises come to pass. He's showing us how redemptive history is moved along from one era to the next. It's moved along through the work of a king. It's carried along by the work of a king. Just consider this particular promise here in 2 Samuel 5. A promise that began back in Genesis 15. Just think about this for a minute. God's people could not realize this promise on their own. The Jebusites were too strong. God's people could not get Genesis 15 to come to pass on their own. It was only when a promised king arrived that God's plan moved one step closer to fulfillment. So do you see the purpose, friends? Do you see the progression? Is this about Abraham? Yes. Is this about David? Yes. Those are historical fulfillments. We have to see. But, and this is the key if you want to read the Bible as a Christian, but we must not stop there. This is ultimately about the Lord Jesus Christ and His church. This is about the work of Christ and His purpose to advance the reign of God for the good of His people, the church. To understand 2 Samuel 5, we not only need to look back to Genesis 15, we also need to look forward to Revelation 21. We need to look forward to Revelation 21 where a new Jerusalem, a new Jerusalem, comes down from heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now that's a wonderful, marvelous, well-known passage and rightfully so. Revelation 21 just just preaches itself. It's it's incredible. It's well-known. But, have you ever noticed specifically in Revelation 21, how the new Jerusalem comes. It comes down from heaven. It comes down. Why does the new Jerusalem come down? Because God's people could never go up to enter it. There's only one who has gone up from earth into heaven. The one who first descended from heaven, our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the 
God's promises rest on the work of a king, not on the work of a people. Having conquered sin and death at the cross, what did King Jesus do? He ascended the holy hill into that heavenly Zion, and through His finished work, what does that King now provide? He brings Jerusalem down to His people. He brings the new Jerusalem down that we could not enter on our own. God's promise rests on the work of a king, not on the work of the people. So friends, do you know what the application for us is from David's conquest of Jerusalem? You know what the application is? It's to stand amazed in the presence of Jesus Christ. It's to stand amazed and to be awestruck at the work of our King who has conquered what we could not conquer so that we could go where we could not take ourselves into the very presence of God to dwell with God once more. Is this about Abraham? Yes. Is this about David? Yes. But it's ultimately about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And until we see it that way, we're not getting the richness that God intends. Don't stop with just the mere historical fulfillment. See the historical fulfillment and then see the work of the Lord Jesus and rejoice. That's the application. Stand amazed that even here in Israel's history, we have the shadows of our eternal hope in the presence of God through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then press it home just a bit further and realize that if, if God has sovereignly ordained His plan to this degree so that even the details of David's reign point us to Christ, if God has sovereignly ordained even that level of detail, then surely He has your days numbered and your steps ordered to bring you safely into that heavenly city. David conquers Jerusalem. And in doing so, we see the hope of God's people down through the ages. A king who conquers and brings in the saving, redemptive reign of God. It's glorious good news. And it's right here in the history of Israel. And so, friends, we come to the end of this patchwork chapter. Verses 17-25, to where we find our final picture. The king depends upon God's presence. The king depends upon God's presence. Now, I'm not trying to skip verses 13 to 16. You'll see there that David continues to take more and more wives. And now, just to make it a little bit more difficult, we've got concubines thrown in as well. So, in the midst of David's thriving kingdom, there's this stunning reminder that there's going to be more to the story. David's, David's a great king, but he's not the Savior. He's compromised, in fact. And we'll have plenty of opportunity as the book continues to consider the significance of his compromise. For now, let's just put the questions on the shelf for a few moments about David's moral compromise. Trust me, we'll get to them soon enough. We'll have 12 whole chapters to consider David's moral compromise. So let's, let's just pause the questions for now. And let's continue to follow the early success of David's kingdom. And as you might expect, a large part of David's success comes at the expense of the Philistines, who just don't seem to know when to quit. Verses 17 and 22 tell the story. The Philistines 
hear of David's growing power, and they decide it would be good to remind this upstart king who runs things in this part of the world. So, on two separate occasions, the Philistines come up for this battle in a valley that's located to the southwest of Jerusalem. Now, in some ways, these battles follow a familiar pattern, at least in connection with David. You can see it in verses 18 and 23. Twice the Philistines come up, and twice David inquires of the Lord. You'll remember this has been one of the key contrasts between David and Saul. Saul spurned God's counsel so that when Saul became desperate for it, all he got from God was silence. David, however, has not followed in Saul's foolish footsteps. Time and time again, David has humbled himself and inquired of God, and each time the Lord has answered his king. And that pattern holds true here in 2 Samuel 5. Twice David inquires of the Lord, and both times God answers him. The first time, the Lord simply tells David, meet the Philistines head on. Notice verse 19. The Lord said to David, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And so that's what David does. And the, the battle is a smashing success. In fact, the battle is so lopsided... They rename the place where it happened. Notice the end of verse 20. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perazim. If we were to paraphrase that name, it would be something like the place where God flattened them like a steamroller. That's a contemporary English paraphrase. The place where God flattened them like a steamroller. That's what God does. He just levels the Philistines. I mean, He just, just levels them. And it's a great victory. In fact, notice what the Philistines do in verse 21. I love verse 21. They leave their foolish, lifeless idols on the battlefield. Your idols are very precious to you when you think they might help, but then when you've just been steamrolled, you you realize that they're worthless, so you just throw them on the ground and run. They're worthless, lifeless idols. It's a wonderful, clear picture of the truth. All other gods are nothing compared to the Lord God. When God reveals His glory and His power, even idolaters recognize that their statues are worthless. So David wins the first battle in an absolute rout. But as we've seen before, the Philistines are rather dense. Instead of learning their lesson, they just try again. I mean, they do it the exact same way. They say, hey, we just got whooped. Let's go to that same place and see if we can get whooped again. So that's what they do. They go right back. Verse 22, they go to the same place. The Valley of Rephaim. And it appears we're going to go through all of it again. But then something changes. David again inquires of the Lord. But when God answers in verse 23, He doesn't tell David to go up. He tells David to go around and wait behind the Philistine army. It's a flanking maneuver, you see. David is to wait behind the Philistines until he hears a particular sound. Notice verse 24. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. So what is David waiting on? Who does he hear marching in the trees? He hears God marching. He hears the Lord of hosts marching into battle ahead of him. You see, David is waiting on the Lord's presence for the fight. It's such a powerful moment. God says to His King, you may be growing in power, but you're going to wait until you hear Me coming. And then you come up to fight. You see, God is teaching both David and Israel and us 
a lesson. He's giving them a much needed reminder. As great as this earthly kingdom might become, and as much power as David might have, in the end, it is the Lord who reigns over His people. It is the Lord who fights Israel's battles. And it is the Lord then who alone is worthy of worship and trust. It's such a wonderful way for this passage to end. It's the first chapter about David reigning over all of Israel and who gets the focus at the end? Who gets the glory? God. God gets the glory because He comes like a leveling warrior and He crushes His enemies so that the king is entirely dependent upon God to do what only God can do. Such a great picture. David may be Israel's king, friends, but it is the Lord who reigns and delivers and fights. In fact, that's why the early days of David's kingdom are going to be so fruitful because even though David is king, he is a humble king who recognizes that at the end of the day, he's not all that much of a big deal. God reigns. God rules. God fights. David is dependent upon the Lord's power and His presence. We said at the outset that 2 Samuel 5 is a patchwork chapter. It's a series of distinct pictures all held together by the thread of God's faithfulness. And I hope, friends, that's what we've seen in our time together this morning. David now stands as Israel's king, but he stands only because of God's faithfulness to his promise. David finds great success in establishing his kingdom, but it's only because God is moving redemptive history forward to His great fulfillment in the new Jerusalem. And David leads his people to victory, but it's only because God is a leveling warrior God who fights on the behalf of His people. Three distinct pictures of David's kingdom, and through it all, one faithful, glorious, unchanging God. We may not have David's specific promises, brothers and sisters, but through faith in Christ, we do have David's God. And that makes all the difference. Amen. Let's pray.